Australian History here at the Institute. And I'm very delighted to welcome Professor Shalini Puri from the University of Pittsburgh to this wonderful talk this evening. Professor Puri is Professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh, where she teaches the literature and cultures of the global south. She is author of this wonderful book, which we have limited copies of tonight at a special discount price uh, on sale outside. Um, and in relation to this project, she also curates the excellent website www.urgentmemory.com, which is an excellent resource, all things on the memory of the Grenada Revolution. She's also the author of The Caribbean Postcolonial, Social Equality, Post-Nationalism and Cultural Hybridity, which won the Gordon and Sybil Lewis Award for the Best Book in Caribbean Studies in 2005. And she's the editor of Legacies of the Caribbean Radical Politics in 2011, and Marginal Migrations, The Circulation of Caribbean Cultures in the Caribbean in 2003. She has also co-edited some important works, including Theorizing Fieldwork in the Humanities, Methods, Reflections, and Approaches to the Global South, and uh, has a forthcoming book, Caribbean Military Encounters, which is in press, and it will be out in 2017? Yes, early 2017. So early 2017, we'll look forward to that next publication. Um, but for now, we're really delighted to have Shalini here and her London debut, as I discovered today. So <laughs> we're all very privileged to hear her speak about Beyond Tragedy of the Grenada Revolution, Remembrance and the Year. Thank you. Um, so I'm actually on the mailing list of UCL and have watched all the enticing activities and events announced over the years. And uh, so it's a, it's a real delight to be here. Um, and I met Kate actually earlier. I mean, I've been following her work for ages, but um, I met her in Grenada. And um, I feel since we traveled to that site <laughs> together, which is um, the planes at Pearls Airport that are left there from the time of the revolution. And for some kind of, some reason that I can't entirely explain became very central to my thinking. Um, so we've both been there and it became the cover of my book as well. Um, so anyway, so thank you, thank you for the invitation. Um, we might think of the alternate title, an alternate title for my, for this talk could be Beyond Tragedy, Genres of Remembrance, A Love Letter from the Humanities. 33 years ago, Grenadians lifted their faces to the skies, to the sight of planes, helicopters, and parachutes darkening the skies, and for a moment they were united in uncertainty about whose military it was. <clears throat> Later, in the sound of the bombs falling and the helicopters firing, the Calypsonian Scaramouche heard music. Boom! Boom! Uncle Reagan sent me music. Uncle Sam, I love to hear music. On October 25, 1983, the U.S. invaded Grenada. To this day, October 25 is a national holiday there. It is called Thanksgiving Day. And so my talk today could very easily dwell on October 25, the violence of that event and of its memorialization, 
how that attack came to be welcomed by Grenadians who only days earlier would have fought it tooth and nail and the years of propaganda that ensued. That's a wall at Tempe that is still painted like this. That's a comic that was distributed. It was made by the CIA in collaboration with a detainee of the revolution. <laughs> Grenadian stamps, huh? surprisingly <laughs> enough. Um, souvenir of Operation Urgent Fury. And this one um, is at Fort Bragg, the home of the 82nd Airborne. And I learned that um, they have a chapel there and there's a stained glass window that commemorates um, various US invasions. So um, suffice it to say there are a lot of windows. <laughs> um, um, and actually there are blank, blank ones as well. When I went there, they were just, um, just installing one on Iraq. But I will actually not spend much more time on October 25 for several reasons. First, the story of the US invasion is already much more widely known outside the Caribbean than is the story of the revolution, and it fits easily within a broader history of US imperialism. It's actually really quite remarkable if you go online, four days of the invasion is represented well over 100 times more than four years of the revolution. Second, focusing on the invasion foregrounds the Cold War narrative of left versus right. What it does not help us understand is the struggle in the Caribbean between different regional left formations. And that intra-left part of the story is crucial for anyone interested in contributing to and strengthening the regional democratic left. If you look at the trajectory and the fall of the revolution as a left versus left struggle, then the real defeat of the revolution occurred not on October 25, but on October 19, 1983, the day of the killing of Maurice Bishop and several other revolutionary leaders and supporters, the fratricide of comrades by comrades. For attack and defeat from outside are easier to recover from because they do not throw one's own ethics or righteousness into question. It is the self-inflicted wounds of the revolution, the betrayal from within, the knowledge that supporters of the revolution had intentionally or unintentionally been complicit with its unraveling. That is what is so much harder to recover from. So if you, if you don't mind, I'm gonna give a very quick historical sketch of the Grenada Revolution. Um, just for people in the room who may, not, um, who may not know some of the history, and I, I hope you will forgive some of the simplifications that, um, that brief summaries must make. I'm dedicating this talk to my brother. <laughs> um, the New Jewel Movement seized power in an almost bloodless coup in 79. It was the first socialist-identified revolution in the Anglophone Caribbean. The leadership of the revolution merged several different progressive left ideologies, including black power, Jamesian, Cuban, and Soviet socialisms, progressive regional religious organizations, third world non-alignment, and anti-imperialism. It had also 
very uneven and difficult relations with Rastafarians. It had overwhelming um, popular support, despite the fact that most Grenadians, unlike their leaders, probably would not have described themselves as socialists. Amongst the influences from Trinidad were NJAC and the New Beginning Movement. The revolution made huge gains in literacy and education. These were the school buses that they converted into schools. Um, health and daycare, agro-industry, economic <coughs> diversification, the arts and regional cooperation and exchanges flourished, and the revolution implemented a long-standing plan to, to build a better airport with British and Cuban collaboration, and this, of course, was the airport that the U.S. said was... Um, um, intended for military aircraft and it would turn Grenada into a missile base for the Soviets and a refueling station for Cuba. In many ways, the revolution expanded participatory democracy and mass political mobilization. Um, by the way, a couple of days ago, um, since you know the book's written but the project is an ongoing one, I met with the official photographer of the revolutionary government um, and so some of the photographs <coughs> that you see uh, are probably his in this presentation. But the revolution also clamped down on freedom of expression, free press, it delayed elections, it saw widespread militarization of society, and it imprisoned and tortured critics of the revolution from both left and right. Um, Walter Rodney and a range of other regional leftists were amongst those to caution and criticize the revolution on these grounds and to say that freedom of expression was not a bourgeois right. It was a right won by working people through struggle. So there were competing authoritarian and democratizing impulses within the revolution, as Didicus Jules, amongst others, has argued and the, author the authoritarian impulses began to erode some of the popular support for the revel. By 1983, in a global context of an economic downturn, an increasing distance between the party and the people, a split developed within the NJM, which had remained a vanguardist party long after seizing power. In September 1983, a majority of the party voted for joint leadership between Maurice Bishop, the popular prime minister who many Grenadians saw as the embodiment of their revolution, and Bernard Cord. The theory was that joint leadership would be a form of democratic centralism and would be preferable to one-manism, and I think a lot of how you interpret that depends on whether you think about it as formalizing an existing arrangement of power or as redistributing power. When Bishop changed his mind and did not accept the party's majority vote, he was placed under house arrest. On October 19, 1983, a thousand-strong crowd freed him, and he led the euphoric crowd up to Fort Rupert, where the army headquarters were. It is unclear who opened fire, but two army personnel were shot, a struggle for control over the fort ensued, and eventually an unarmed Maurice Bishop 
and several of his comrades were lined up against this wall of Fort Rupert and executed by the army. A revolutionary military council placed the island under a shoot-on-site curfew and denounced Bishop as a traitor. A few days later, on October 25, the U.S. invaded on the pretext of evacuating the 500 or so American medical students there um, and after pumping up fears about the airport being a military-grade airport. The bodies of the slain leaders of the revolution have not been recovered or buried properly. The trials and appeals of the so-called Grenada 17, those convicted of the executions, including Bernard Cord, lasted through 2007. The last of the Grenada 17 was released from Richmond Hill Prison in 2009. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission was appointed in 2001. <coughs> Where to go from here? I believe that a redirection of the scholarship and the revolution and the memory of it would help. Scholarship to date has been overdetermined by several things. First, as I have pointed out, Cold War historiography, which focuses on the global geopolitical context and neglects the range of local Caribbean agendas. And this is one instance in which there was a big gap between the metropolitan left and the Caribbean left. Um, these were recovered from Pearls Airport. That's a US Defense Department photograph, um, kind of proof that the invasion was, was needed. Um, second, the focus of scholarship has largely been on the leaders of the revolution. And this is partly because much of the work on the revolution has come from social science disciplines that have tended to focus more on state and party and formal institutions of government. But in addition, much of the thinking has been haunted by the question, bishop or court? That parsing of sides that fractured families and nation. And in retrospect, how ironic does this photograph become, this photograph that was meant to work towards the unity of the party, and in fact, it was precisely that that split. To some extent, the decades-long trial and appeals of the Grenada 17 contributed to locking the discussion into these terms. And finally, the fact that the slain leaders never received burial and the absence of memorials that acknowledged the revolution also contributed to a leader-focused memory. This justified desire for memorials to the revolution culminated after years of struggle in 2009 when the Point Salines International Airport was finally renamed the Morris Bishop International Airport, and rightly so. I don't in any way make light of the need for memorials, nor of the agonized self-questioning about which side was right especially for the generation that participated in the making of the revolution and knew the leaders personally. But I think the debate, Bishop or Cord, has taken us as far as it can. And so I ask how to reframe the discussion. What genres of memory might help now? And this brings me to my third point, which is that memory of the revolution almost always begins 
with its tragic fall and reads backwards from that tragedy. I think this is what we were talking about just before. Um, and the tragedy was profound and spectacular. The shock was devastating, and people live with it to this day. Moreover, as Malika Brooks-Lowe has pointed out, the very landscape reinforces the tragedy, for there are landmarks throughout Grenada which visually embody and remind on a daily basis of the violent end of the revolution. There is, of course, the plaque at the fort. This is Fort Rupert, now Fort renamed back to its colonial name, Fort George, viewed from Fort Frederick, and you can just see the side of um, a little bit of Richmond Hill Prison. That building is called the Lion's Den, um, which uh, I don't know what to make of that name. Um, there's also the fort ramparts off which people leapt to escape the mayhem on October 19th. These are paintings that, again, remember the tragedy, right? And this one by Knut Kalist combines the invasion up above, the people leaping off the wall, which is really a kind of, I don't know, it's sort of a, an icon. Uh, it's just part of the collective unconscious, I think. And here are the people being killed on October 19th. Here's another... There are just men, image after image, poem after poem returns to that moment. And that's a kind of stylization of the people jumping off the ramparts, transformed into flowers. In addition, there, the, there were, at least until 2007, the scorched and bombed um, ruins of Butler House, the um, headquarters of the PRG, People's Revolutionary Government, the remains of the mental asylum which the U.S. bombed. But there are few visual reinforcements, few visual remnants of the accomplishments and achievements of the revolution, especially before the renaming of the, uh, of the airport. So while several policies of the revolution are still in effect, from the national insurance scheme to paid maternity leave, and though many of today's leaders in Grenada were educated during the revolution, um, and hence, Mr. X's Calypso, I don't know if you heard it um, earlier, called It Can't Done, like Revolution Can't Done. Um, there's not a lot of visual memory of it left. Yeah, so there's not a lot of memory of, or visual memory of the achievements of the revolution left. No museums, no schools, no buildings named after it. Only the Morris Bishop Highway, and even this modest sign on the roundabout disappeared a few years ago. The airport's renaming, too, simultaneously celebrates achievement and mourns loss. But it was important precisely because it enabled a public space for doing both of these things. Tragedy and memorials are cousins. Memorials manage mourning. They name the dead to console the living. For years, such consolation was afforded only for fallen American soldiers. While there are memorials to the Grenada Revolution outside Grenada, a highway in Martinique, the Morris Bishop House in Hackney, where I went just a few days ago, a Morris Bishop bust in Santiago de Cuba at the Casa de, del Caribe, and unofficial personal memorials, um, 
And what I find beautiful about this, which is in the graveyard, of course, there's no body in the grave. You can see Fort George in the background. But what I find moving much more than the actual image is the fact that there are, you can see candles there, you can see the candle wax. So it's kind of a, a, living, a living monument. Um, it's only through persistent struggle that existing official Grenadian memorials to the revolution have been achieved, whether the plaques at the fort or the airport or the gravestone of the PRA soldiers who lost their lives during the U.S. invasion. This was put up only in 2013. Or the memorial to Cubans who died during the U.S. invasion, which was put up October 25 of last year. People often argue that the renaming of the airport and proper burial are ways of bringing closure to a troubled chapter. But I believe that they could be openings to a different chapter in the memory of the Grenada Revolution that could free memory from its focus on leaders and rechannel it towards memory of the many ordinary people who together made the revolution with small daily acts of imagination, struggle, and creativity. People who live and work today. Grenadians who left secure jobs to flock to the revolution from, or people who came from St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Jamaica, Cuba, England, the US, India actually too. And I think not only of the Cuban internationalists who died on October 25th, to whom there is this memorial, but of the Cuban internationalists who lived and worked for Grenada for years before returning to Cuba. And so I feel surely death need not be the primary measure of revolutionary commitment. I could not help noticing that the new Cuban memorial in Grenada made room for the dead by uprooting the living tree in the shade of which living people gathered and communed before the space became an official memorial. And I don't know if any of you were in Grenada in those years, but I'd be very interested to know whether that tree in Gorion Park was there at that time. Um, I think the surrounding might have been made later, but... Um, and so I wonder, what would a public memorial to the revolution look like that was not organized around loss and mourning? What would a memorial look like that was devoted to the living in all their diverse relations to the Grenada Revolution? Just as important as the state's renaming of Grenada's airport is the anonymous graffiti that says, March 13 is our history, or Grenada, Cuba, friends forever, or at the fort where Bishop was killed, no pain, no gain, brother, rest in peace. I love you, Maurice. And so as I think about memory, I think not only of what tragedy, tragedy as a genre makes visible, but also what it renders invisible. Tragedy forgets the genuine joyfulness and profound creativity of the revolutionary years. Unmixed with authoritarianism, sorry, not unmixed with authoritarianism and militarization and error, to be sure, yet unparalleled in many ways in what they were able to accomplish and the way it energized an entire generation. This is, by the way, also one of the reasons that I think trauma studies as a model does not fit well 
with the study of the Grenada Revolution and the fall of it, and if people are interested, we could talk about that later. What I love about Merle Collins's poem, Callaloo, is that it understands the revolution as something that is made every day in every home, often by women. There's no set for Callaloo, there's no set recipe. You kind of improvise this delicious dish with whatever ingredients you have at hand. And that is a beautiful model, I think, for a creolized Marxism or for the Grenada Revolution. And it also captures the way in which the revolution was kind of sensory and involves sensory delight. Right? In contrast, tragedy loses the memory of the more democratic impulses and achievements of the revolution, and its vision is perhaps too distant to get at these details. It loses sight of the small gestures, the ordinary everyday practices of working through, of forgiveness, of generosity, of coexistence across disagreements. David Scott, in his erudite new book, um, Omens of Adversity, Tragedy, Time, Memory, Justice, makes a case for the value of tragedy over romance as a framework for thinking about the revolution. And he sees in tragedy a useful way of thinking about the limits of human will and agency. Um, and he talks about people not as heroes of modernity, but as conscripts of modernity. Um, and emphasizes the unknowable consequences of our actions, rather than those of the romantic revolutionary hero who overcomes all odds. Tragedy is also valuable in the Grenadian context in that it offers a framework that recognizes flaws but does not merely condemn. So in a way, it offers a model and a lesson in political humility. The other important element of tragedy, as Hegel put it, is that tragedy is not the conflict of right versus wrong. Tragedy is the conflict of right versus right. Two opposing but compelling logics, each made absolute. So for example, one way of thinking about Sophocles, the Antigone, would be it's the conflict of two valid laws, the law of the state and the law of the family. For Scott, this model of the conflict of valid claims also offers an alternative to casting one side of the revolutionary leadership as villain and the other as tragic hero. And so it enables him to think about people in terms of conscripts and as victims. And indeed, part of Scott's book aims to reevaluate the so-called Grenada 17 more sympathetically. But despite the strengths of Scott's account, I think tragedy has received too much emphasis. And so part of my inquiry stems simply from a desire to see more fully explored the whole diverse range of genres in which people have remembered the revolution and represented it. There are alternatives to both romance and tragedy. What about epic, confessional, conversion narrative, prison narrative, memoir, testimonio, or even that, that favorite of the international press, the human interest story. David Scott's work might help think anew about who the tragic heroes actually are, but it does not fundamentally break with the focus on heroes. 
or with the big man theory of history. In its place, I would suggest a more popular story. And by populism, I don't mean mere majoritarianism, which would perhaps point again towards Bishop. I would say that populism would be grounds for a less leader-centered analysis altogether. So populism would invite us to think about the ways in which the party structure both authorized and constrained action, the ways in which the revolution exceeded the desires and goals of its leaders, the wide range of political action, cultural experiments, revolutionary work, and radical subjectivities that developed outside the party. And that's why many of my own conversations have really not involved, I mean, I have spoken to people um, who held various different political posts, but I've also spoken to detainees of the revolution, poets, painters, sugarcane juice vendors, um, so all kinds of people um, who lived through that time. Hence also my comments not only on the need for memorials, but on the limits of memorials, and my hope that the rightful renaming of the airport might free the memory of the revolution to focus on ordinary people and their actions. The decision that someone makes as they walk along the carronage as to whether to greet their former jailers. The imprisoned tailor, George Joseph, who refused to stitch the gallows suit for the execution of one of the, of the Grenada 17 on death row, choosing instead to keep faith with that early promise of the revolution. He himself had been spared the gallows as a result of the amnesty of the that the revolution declared when it seized power on March 13. So we need a genre that focuses not on the dead heroes, but on the living chorus, ordinary people who live on and wonder and try to make sense of that past. And so I began with this conundrum, playing within feet of the wall where Bishop and his comrades were executed, bullet holes still visible in the basketball pole, and, uh, and you can <laughs> covered up bullet holes here, cemented over, also still visible. So they're there, they're a few feet away from this history, but it's unclear what their relationship is to it. Are they indifferent to it? Are they unaware of it? Are they just used to living with it? And so the, the question for me was what was going to be their relationship to the revolution and what was going to shape their relationship to it? The issue is not only one of amnesia, it's about the terms of the memory. So it's not currently taught in Grenadian schools, but if it were, and I think that there are some efforts afoot now to change the, um, um, the curriculum, what would they learn? Would they learn about the revolution as a cautionary tale? Would they learn about it in terms of larger-than-life leaders? Or would they learn about the ways in which the people of Grenada and neighboring Caribbean countries collectively transformed their understanding of citizenship and their political futures? And so over the years, I've been thinking about the revolution. I've been inspired by those who have found a transformative power in sorrow, who have made it turn, that is, who have made sorrow turn towards Grenada rather than away from Grenada and away from political reconstruction. You may remember in the aftermath of the revolution, calypsos like Black Stalin's Ism Schism, where he 
which kind of reflected that mood of disillusionment with all organized politics. It was sort of like um, capital, communist, or socialism. Every ism needs a nuclear bomb, right? And so, um, and so I think of Langston Hughes' poem, Islands, a poem he wrote about Haiti, but I think applies to Grenada. Wave of sorrow, do not drown me now. I see the island still ahead somehow. I see the island and its sands are fair. Wave of sorrow, take me there. And what I find so moving about the poem is its effort to make sorrow not the force that drowns one, but the momentum that delivers one to the island. And if you move away from the obvious tragic heroes for a moment, you could think about Nadia Bishop, Bishop's daughter, as a tragic figure, in fact, akin in some ways to Antigone. She's returned several times to Grenada to try to find the remains of her father's body so that she could give it proper burial. Um, just like Antigone, who sought only to properly bury her brother Polynices, who had been denied burial by Creon on grounds that he had been a traitor. But what did the actual Nadia Bishop do in 2008? She went to Richmond Hill Prison and she embraced her father's killer and said to him, you were the last person my father saw before he died. You are my last living connection to my father. And she embraced him. And she offered, she went on the radio, she offered her unconditional forgiveness for the killing of her father and asked for forgiveness on behalf of her father for the lives that the revolution had taken or destroyed. In that moment, she stepped out of a tragic script into something far more extraordinary that happens in the everyday, in the present. And that makes a different set of things possible. For a long time, there was very little literature set in Grenada after 1983. That is, it might have been written after 1983, but it was all looking back towards 83. But recently, and post-Hurricane Ivan in 2004, we have seen a flurry of new narratives which take the memory of the revolution in different directions and genres from memoir to novel to plays and films. What does Ivan have to do with anything, you might ask? What I found is that several poets and painters have found in Ivan a way to rethink 1983. For Ivan in 2004 was the biggest national crisis since 83. But the difference with Ivan was that people came together to solve the destruction and devastation. And so for many people, it became a model of how to respond to crisis. The other thing that was interesting about Ivan is, you know, for years, especially before 2008, when the NDC came to power, there was a huge public silence on the topic. And I think it's very possible that the, the way the landscape was devastated after Ivan recalled the landscape after the American bombing. And so there was a way in which it triggered memory. Um, 
And so anyway, so Ivan seems to me to surface in a lot of the literature as a turning point and a way of rethinking, for example, in this um, painting by Susan Maines, which is a way of thinking about the Grenada 17, those bare 17 trees, and the thread that connects them to the landscape um, rather than segregates them um, in prison. So the newer work includes a lot of fascinating literature, things like Franklin, uh, David Omobale's Franklin's novel, Mission Betrayed, um, an amazing play by Urias Peters called Redemption Time, Hewitt Lane's We Move Tonight. There have been recently, again, post-2008, there have been art exhibitions. And there was actually also, if you don't know about this, this amazing 34-volume, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, it's a series in itself, but 34 volumes called the Grenada Chronicles, which is a series of primary sources um, that run from 1970 to 1983. Every, you know, anything, any comment that could be found that um, in some way illuminated the Grenada Revolution or documented its development. And that's by um, the Grenada National Museum and Anne Wilder. Um, so, what's different about this new work is um, not that it shares any kind of political ideology, um, they're very different perspectives, but they all look at the ways the revolution seeped into that, that untidy thing we call daily life. And so, some of my favorites are in Urias Peters' play, Redemption Time, there's this account of this character, Steve, who works for the National Liberation Army, and he's getting all set to, you know, they're training to take power on March, well, they didn't know it was going to be March 13, but they knew they were training to take power. Two things struck me about it. One, he had to take an initiation oath, but he couldn't read it. And second, um, when that day came, right, there's a, which, of course, there's a heroic account, right? When that glorious day came, his comrades were supposed to come and pick him up to go and charge the barracks, but for some circumstantial reason, they couldn't come, and so he slept through March 13. Um, and then similarly, in, in this novel, Mission Betrayed, there's an amazing account of... Um, of the flag, the white flag of the revolution with the red circle. Um, and, and even the story of how that flag was made, by the way, is a fascinating story and why they chose it. Um, but so everybody was supposed to fly that white flag to indicate support if they supported the revolution. What's really interesting here is they fly the flag, but it's a very makeshift flag. And in fact, it's made out of underwear <laughs> that um, this character, Leroy's mother, um, wore. And the mother is a Garyite, yeah? Um, and of course, I, you know, there was a, when Gary won that huge wage raise for the workers, one of the things that he was associated with, or one of the things that you heard very often was, with the wage raise now, when the women work and the wind blows their skirts, they can remain modest because they can afford to wear drawers. So it's those drawers that she flew in support of the Grenada Revolution, but she also flew them because her husband was a police officer who had uh, 
imprisoned NJM activists. So it was also a way of trying to ensure that he didn't get into trouble with the revolution. Um, so why am I saying this? You could not have a more complicated or layered relationship to the March 13th flag. But it doesn't indicate skepticism. What it does is it tells you about people with cross-cutting affiliations and mixed motivations for their actions. It's precisely the engagement, not with idealized absolutes, but with the mixed bag of the everyday that makes them so compelling. They're told with deep sensitivity and affection for the revolution, um, typically not spectacular accounts of that October 19th violence, but the little things that in retrospect you could trace back, right? And just all the ways in which things got messy, right? People are tired, they're sleepless, they're fascinated with the revolution, the guns are exciting, the guns are terrifying, somebody's face is, little kid's face is blown off while he's trying to clean a gun, somebody doesn't want to go to a workers' ed meeting, they want to hang out with their girlfriend, um, somebody wants to protect a friend from being imprisoned, these are the kinds of memories that I hope will surface now. There's, of course, always been such work. Merle Collins's work has, as I think, done an amazing amount um, towards dialogue. And again, it's very interesting because there's very rarely a kind of a single revelatory moment in her, in her writing. Um, and so again, when I'm thinking about her novel, Angel, like father and daughter have this conflict over Gary, right? The daughter, Angel, is... Uh, NJM activist, the father's a staunch Garyite, um, daughter gets mad at him, they have a huge fight, and eventually he takes the photograph of Gary down. But he doesn't do it because he's persuaded of her political opinions. He does it out of love for his daughter, plain and simple. And so what I love about that work, and a lot of the new work, is the nuance and honesty and gentleness of the exploration. It is a loving critique. I think also the St. Lucian poet Kendall Hippolyte's poem, Revo Lyric, also a loving critique of the revolution. And he says... Them go talk about the people in the struggle and how in this dry season things too dread, too serious for love. As though love not a serious thing? This instrument we trying to make, society, economics wood and string, then politics the major key. But the real, real thing, the reason and the melody, the song we want to sing is love, is love. Come, Dudu, sing with me. Hippolyte fundamentally redirects the understanding of the revolutionary project towards love, redirects it from militarism to persuasion, from the command form towards persuasion, from comrade to Dudu, from polemic, which militarizes language, to a simple invitation. Come, Dudu, sing with me. There's no shortcut to the people. No decree that it can enlist them. Loving relationships cannot wait. They cannot be sacrificed to a greater or later good. Beyond the march, the rally, the anthem, which enlist the people, 
Hippolyte defends the lyric poem with its intimate, affectionate invitation to one person. And this brings me to what the humanities and the arts can offer the study and the memory of the Grenada Revolution. Gayatri Spivak has described the work of the humanities as the uncoercive rearrangement of desire. And I think of this phrase often in relation to the revolution, for revolution too seeks to transform, along with material conditions, imagination, subjectivity, and desire. And yet the revolution was marred and disfigured precisely by coercion, a coercion which took its most extreme form on October 19, but was present from early on. And so I think about the ways in which the humanities can remind revolution of the promise at its heart. And as I worked, the uncoercive rearrangement of desire became another way of thinking towards democratic socialism. Moreover, much of the work of the social sciences, and even the humanities, has been made in an evidentiary mode. If I can prove X to be true, you will agree with me. Evidence is therefore marshaled to secure agreement. Scholars of and participants in the revolution have spent decades trying to identify what happened and to agree on what went wrong. I share that desire, but I believe a yet more important question for the younger generation might be, how can we build a political future without relying on agreement about what happened? So I want to try to make space in academia not only for rational evidentiary argument and cognition, but also emotional sensory um, cognition. What counts as evidence varies from discipline to discipline. Thus, for some disciplines, party minutes and interviews with party members count as evidence, but conversations with a street-side vendor Memorials, paintings, calypsos, literary texts do not. What is the evidentiary status of the fact that someone's voice drops to a whisper even now, 30 years past the fall of the revolution? What is the evidentiary status of someone's hair standing on end as they remember things? These belong to what I have taken to calling the MLA works unsighted. The work of the humanities does not easily or quickly convert into policy or play well in courts of law. But I have tried to learn from the arts, and I think one might be able to learn similar things from religion. An openness to contradiction, a willingness to make an imaginative leap, and the power of not only argument but suggestion in activating human agency. The political urgency of coming to terms with the Grenada Revolution need not turn to polemics, which I believe is an overused and often self-destructive rhetorical resource on the left. We should train ourselves to be as skillful with other kinds of rhetoric, more gentle and more searching. Our disciplines shape the kinds of arguments that we find persuasive. Every discipline renders something legible and others illegible. And what I want to argue, and I hope this will be of help to students and scholars in the room, is that interdisciplinarity is a way of learning to think and to listen 
in several different registers. To listen for what does not ordinarily or does not already fit our frames of reference. As such, interdisciplinarity is a form of political care and gentleness, dialogue and persuasion are political and democratic values. I carry them with me to both politics and academic scholarship. My methodology for the study of the revolution then is derived from the arts but in conversation with the social sciences. This is what I have learned from the arts. That critique unaccompanied by love accomplishes very little. That multiple affiliations, revolutionary commitment, commitment to family or lover or school teacher or student, even when they are at odds with one another, are not failures of revolutionary discipline. They are acts of humanity and care. That polemic is the rhetorical sister of political dogma. That clarity and certainty have costs. I think of the hardening of rhetoric, the use of language to intimidate during the revolution, and the resolution of disagreement through force. One of the critiques of the revolution made by even those closest to it was that it over-militarized society. Polemic is a manifestation in language of militarization. Resounding arguments tend to seek only agreement and achieve either agreement or polarization. But what if the goal of conversation and of our work on Grenada is not to provide proof or secure agreement, but to make space for others' participation and others' memories? The humanities offer only this, the uncoercive rearrangement of desire. Come, Dudu, sing with me, is just an invitation, not an obligation, unarmed and without threat. There is no or else. Neither my politics nor the arts that I study, nor the demands of a collective memory project preclude my expressing disagreement, but they do lead me to phrase my disagreements gently. And so all I offer the memory of the Grenada Revolution is this love letter from the humanities. For the searching, gentle language of the arts has much to offer when approaching the wonders and the wounds of the Grenada Revolution. Thank you.